If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Seck. I'm William Saradet. I'm Jessica Fuentes. And today we're talking about exhibitions. So uh, if you are anywhere in Texas right now, you'll realize that shows have been opening rapidly over the past couple weeks. Um, All three of us have been on the ground in different areas of Texas. I was actually briefly on the ground outside of Texas. And because we've been doing so much and seeing so much, we just kind of wanted to sit around, chat, catch up with each other, but also fill you in on some of the things that we've been seeing uh, this fall so far. Um, We'll kind of preface this like we preface our fall preview video. Um, You know, there's a ton happening. There are obviously some shows that we're not going to talk about that are amazing. There are some shows that have opened that we haven't been able to see yet. Uh, We always do our best to try and, like I said, get everywhere. But Sometimes it just takes a little bit of time and we can't see stuff within a week of it opening. So with that, uh, I wanted to kick us off and ask the two of y'all about kind of larger institutional shows that y'all have seen that y'all have found really interesting so far. Um, Again, to give us a little background, uh, we picked six or actually six plus a bonus shows for our fall preview this year, and a lot of those are open now. Some of them are actually opening this weekend, the weekend of uh, September 22nd that we're recording this podcast. Um, Some of them have already been open. And then there's just a handful, like maybe three that have yet to open. But we've also seen a lot that uh, wasn't on that list. So uh, William, I'll throw it to you. Is there anything just kind of larger institutionally that you've... um, that you've seen. I know you went to a press preview earlier this week for a show, right? Yes, I've I've done a few of those just in the past week. It is that time of year. Um, yesterday, I went to the warehouse for their opening of Room by Room, which is kind of how they usually do their shows. Each room is a little bit of a theme. It's organized that way. And then... Um, once you circle halfway through the building towards the rear, uh, you come across a selection of paintings by Lucy Bull. And for for the uninitiated also, just to jump in, the warehouse is an art space that is essentially run by the Rachowski collection, uh, Howard and Cindy Rachowski, who are two collectors in Dallas. Um, it's kind of north of most things in Dallas, or at least most art things. And it's this huge museum quality space that has kind of longer term rotating shows. So, you know, sometimes shows will be up for three months, six months. Um, This show, the main show that you're talking about, William, is all works from the Rachowski collection, right? 
That's right. Um, and I sometimes call it the Rachowski warehouse to clarify if you're not into art and in Dallas, um, you may not know what the warehouse is. Uh, it's named very eponymously. Um, and yes, the works on view here, uh, I was told are kind of as a way to show the newer works collected after their recent 25 year anniversary uh, collection exhibition. They've got a ton of stuff and they've collected a lot of stuff even since 2020. Um, And they put it front and center right when you walk in. There's kind of a, there's many, many galleries in that building. It's quite large. But when you come in through the entry foyer, um, there's like an entry hallway gallery. And then once you turn inward to the building, there's like a big central, it's like the largest room uh, out of all of them. It's hung with mostly paintings. I was struck by how brand new most of those are. It seemed kind of like an intentional choice to show uh, how invested they are in emerging work, stuff that's being made right now. I'm really glad that they're continuing to do this series. Like the uh, the the first one, William, that you mentioned that was like a recap of 25 years of their collecting. Um, it was the entire space. And I mean, like I said, this is a museum quality space. This is a huge warehouse um, that has walls and proper, it's, it's proper exhibition space that guides you through. So, uh, to have that much work installed in the last show, if I, if I remember correctly, it was only something like 20 or 25% of the collection, which it's crazy to conceptualize that, to think that they could install this uh, space four times to show the entire collection. But I'm glad they're doing this again because, I mean, well, simply because they could do it four times. Uh, it's nice to be able to just kind of get an overview of, you know, it's collections are always like a portrait of a collector in my view. Um, and it's nice to kind of see what the Rachowskis have been really thinking about. Yeah, I, I mean, we're starting this conversation on the topic of institutional exhibitions and the warehouse or the Rachowski collection is kind of an interesting choice. Um, It's a private collection. It's a well-known one. It's pretty impressive in scope, size, and expense. Uh, And as you mentioned, Brandon, it is museum quality and they are running their program almost as a museum would. Um, But it fits in this kind of in-between curatorial space. It's really just a private individual with a passion and interest in art. Um, it, it doesn't quite have the footprint of, say, the DMA or the MFAH. Those are more traditional institutions. But it's definitely bigger than some uh, mid-sized nonprofit institutions that have been around for 20 and 30 plus years. I mean, they they no doubt have more square footage than the CAM in Houston. I was just going to say, there's museums I've seen in um, Odessa, Tyler, that don't have the same square footage as the warehouse. It, it really is kind of a special um, experience. And yeah, everyone was there yesterday ready to kind of ring in the fall season It wasn't quite cool enough for that yet, but we did enjoy ourselves. Uh, So speaking of 
quasi-institutional spaces. I was recently in San Antonio at Ruby City, which is also an organization that doesn't call itself a museum, um, but is the home of the private collection of Linda Pace um, and is uh, run by the Linda Pace Foundation. Um, so I was at Ruby City for the opening of their newest exhibition, Waterways, um, which is a reinstallment of their permanent collection, um, but kind of through the theme and focusing on the idea of water. Um, some of the pieces are very straightforward representations of water, like a print of a whale in the ocean. That would be that would be Ricky Armendariz if uh, if memory serves. I can just tell by the uh, by by the imagery in my head of, of his work. I can tell what you're talking about. That is correct. Yeah, um, but then other pieces are much more conceptual or, and are playing with ideas related to water. Um, for example, there's a Jim Hodges work um, that is one of his pieces of small small mirrors that are collage together to cover a surface um so that idea of reflection um and several of the pieces also play with the idea of movement um including two recent acquisitions um one by jenny holzer and one by mona hatum uh jessica did you were you able to like walk down to the san pedro creek uh new addition to the campus because that's part of what this show is doing also right it's kind of like a call and response to ruby city finally actually being connected to the larger um extended river walk area of san antonio you know i'm embarrassed to say i did not do that um (laughs) but i did take note of the fact that the entryway to ruby city for the last few years has been Um, slightly obstructed because of the work being done on the river walk. Um, But I took note of the fact that it is feeling more open. It's feeling more approachable. um, And I think there's maybe still some work to be done, uh, but it definitely has a whole new feel um, when you come and and enter the space. It's, it's much more um, welcoming. Yeah. Well, the front of that building is, essentially seen from that river adjacent walkway. And I feel like for years, you know, it's either been under construction or it just hasn't been the main entry because whenever whenever I'm going to uh, Ruby City, I normally kind of approach it from the back because I'm coming from the Blue, uh, Blue Star Complex or I'm coming from Art Pace or I'm coming from some of the other institutions that are located. Essentially, I guess, what would that be? Maybe... Is that west of the institution or west of Ruby City? Whatever direction. Basically, you're coming at it from the back most of the time. So I can imagine that having that building be able to finally present well from the front would be a big sigh of relief for Ruby City, considering when they opened it, part of the big deal was having a Starkitect design uh, Linda Pace's dream vision for a building. Yes, for years. And both times I've been able to visit Ruby City, um, the experience of seeing the building and walking in was uh, the juxtaposition of this like beautifully, perfectly bright, shiny, manicured campus directly adjacent to um, a mud pit that's under construction. And, you know, we're no strangers to rampant construction progress in Texas. Uh, But having said that, it will be really exciting to return and kind of see 
what the intended landscape uh, has has become. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm I'm gonna stick with the <laughs> the one person's vision for a museum. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually went to Crystal Bridges uh, in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is uh, Alice Walton's of the Walmart family's essentially dream for a museum. Um, she built this collection basically from the ground up and not that long a time and then opened this institution um, in 2011. So the museum itself isn't that old. They're actually in the middle of like, it's something like a, a don't quote me on this number, but it's something like an 80 to 100,000 square foot expansion. So they're basically... It, it, they're kind of doubling the size of the museum, which is wild to do. Name me any other museum that after 10 years or 12 years of being open doubles its square footage. But that's what happens um, when you have Walmart money. Uh, again, for anyone who needs the reminder, Bentonville, Arkansas, it's in like the northwest corner of Arkansas. It's where um, Walmart is headquartered. It's where Tyson uh, the food company is headquartered. It's it's really kind of like a company town. There is a lot of wealth situated in that region because of these companies. Um, and Alice Walton, in addition to a lot of other philanthropy, decided to open Crystal Bridges. So this was my second visit to Crystal Bridges. So I didn't have kind of the new visitor starry-eyed experience but it is a really cool place to visit like if you've never been there's a ton of like walking and hiking trails around the museum which is kind of one of the best parts of it actually um and all of those are like dotted with outdoor sculpture um and then this year there was an annie Leibowitz show opening um which again was really interesting, you know, Andy Leibowitz kind of who someone who is regarded as like our celebrity photographer of the times works for Vogue, uh, kind of came up through working for Rolling Stone. But this was a really interesting show because it's like installed almost like her studio. It's um, they screwed drywall into the drywall of the wall and then they pinned photos up using just like clear push pins and put big sheets of plexi over it and it it sounds i I, yeah jessica i know you probably haven't seen images but i want to get your thoughts just hearing that i was when i stepped into the show i was kind of like i don't know exactly how i feel about this but the more i sat with it the more i kind of was like okay i i get it and it's it's not only like part of the show that's like that the entire show is like that, which I almost feel like, yeah, if you're going to go on this kind of kooky, unusual install, you got to go all or nothing. And they went all or nothing, because if you did it only for some of the show or only for the early work, it would kind of feel half-assed. Um, and it doesn't. Like, it it actually was kind of cool. Uh, and then, of course, you know, she just takes so many photographs. Um, apparently, Crystal Bridges, like, commissioned her to go around the U.S. and take photographs of people, which, you know, is a great way to get someone to put on a show of your work. Um, ingenious on her part. But also, apparently, she's just been making so much work that there are, there are these huge screens at the end of the show, and photos are going to be continuously added onto this, like, 12 minute or I I don't know how long it is, but this very long looping 
um, video of photos. It's, you know, it. I, I don't love Crystal Bridge's temporary exhibition space, if I have to be completely honest, but this was a really good use of it. Yeah, it seems like that would be a jarring way to see photographs when you first walk into the space. But I do like the idea of transforming a typical gallery space and a typical gallery experience. Um, And even if that is by the way that the work is presented, it kind of puts the visitors in a completely different headspace um, for seeing the work. So I could get behind it, but I need to see it for myself. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, it's I I, probably one of the reasons that I kind of liked it is it was nice to see someone taking like a different, exhibition install approach like I feel like I've been paying a lot of attention to exhibition design recently and I don't know I haven't like I I haven't necessarily been wowed or I haven't been surprised or it's just a lot of exhibition design that I've seen has felt kind of safe in institutions and of course there's history behind that and institutions or larger museums aren't necessarily going to be the ones breaking down barriers all the time um, and and reinventing the wheel. You know, why would you do that if you know how to install a show just like you would any other show? But probably one of the reasons that I was attracted to it eventually after I spent more time with it was because it was at least something different. You know, I think I got halfway through the exhibition of Flemish masterworks at the Dallas Museum of Art called Saints, Sinners, Lovers, and Fools before I had that consideration come into my mind, Brandon, of being like, oh, is this is this show hung well or not? Is it is it hung in a way that's kind of like bringing something to the conversation? And I think I got so lost in the masterworks that I didn't really care. Um, and then by contrast... Down at the other end of the museum, I saw Jatovia Gary's exhibition, I Know It Was the Blood, which is a kind of a sparse installation of sculptural works um, by her. And I thought, oh, okay, they're taking some chances on, you know, maybe other exhibitions. And I I was like, this is actually kind of a nice balance. Um, In my opinion, it took longer to get through the Flemish Uh, master paintings exhibition there was more stuff you know to be fair but I did appreciate the intermedia hang of video work next to active sculpture next to a sculpture work that's doing a little of both some neon um yeah very refreshing to see at the DMA Um, Speaking of exhibition design, I recently saw The World Outside, Louise Nevelson at Mid-Century at the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art. And I was really surprised. You know, I've seen their special exhibition space many times and transformed in different ways. Um, But this was the first time that it felt very open and cohesive. and, And I had a completely different sense of the space for the first time. Um, I think part of it is the exhibition design colors that the curator chose. Um, They tie in nicely with Nevelson's work, right? Um, Nevelson, who makes these large sculptures um, that are often painted one solid color, either black or white or gold. Um, The walls in the exhibition are mostly either gray or black or white or red. 
Um, so it kind of ties into her body of work, but also something um, kind of unexpected. Um, there is a whole room that was lit by black lights. So Louise Nevelson's, some of her earliest, I think, um, large black sculptures, assemblage sculptures, and lit with black lights. And I believe, um, you know, from the from the wall text, it sounded like this was a way that Nevelson herself initially showed some of these pieces. And so, yeah, it was a bit surprising to walk in and see that. And granted, it was just <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it was just one small room, but it did. I mean. One of the works that was included in that room is a work from the Carter's collection, which I've seen many times, and it did make me see it in a new light. Well, see, I like when exhibition design, like, again, that's like taking a risk or making you reconsider something. Like, it's also like being willing to edge into things that we thought were campy or things that aren't quote, quote, museum worthy. Um you know, it kind of makes me think about this wasn't recent uh, in terms of what we're talking about. But at the end of the big uh, blowout MC Escher show at the MFAH a couple years ago, there was a blacklight room, like a blacklight poster room. Because, like, if you think about MC Escher, like, the way that a lot of people saw those images were either in books or on record covers or on blacklight posters. Um Jessica, do you think that the show or the space felt different also because it was a lot of 3D work? Like, I have to think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but thinking back to the Eamon Carter's temporary exhibitions, like, you know, like a lot of museums, there have been just a lot of shows that are primarily 2D. And I feel like it's a a lot of times it's... um, you know, it's it might be easier to fall into routine when you're hanging that kind of work, but when work comes in that is meant to be engaged with in a completely different way, they oftentimes you kind of have to shake up an exhibition space. Was that a factor? I, I definitely think that was a factor. Um, though, you know, many of Nevelson's works are intended as almost wall reliefs. So many of them do sit on the wall, but there were some freestanding sculptures. And there is also an array of prints as well, um, which maybe I think a lot of people don't necessarily think of her work as involving printmaking. Um, but she did have a residency at the Tamarind um, Print Institute and completed a body of work through that program um with that let's let's talk about some of the shows that we've seen at galleries uh, i was spending a lot of time this week trying to gallery hop and um catch up from my crystal bridges weekend um so i mean i ended up seeing quite a bit like i went by moody gallery to see shows by randy twaddle and bethany johnson um we've i, I think we've written about bethany johnson not too long ago, um, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but she's had shows at Grey Duck Gallery in Austin. Um, she makes these, uh, she, she makes 2D works, but the real highlight for me um, in this show, and I'm not sure if some of them could have been in the Grey Duck show, it's possible, or the same style work, uh, but she makes these wonderful, like, compressed, um, they, they look like cross cuts of earth. Like, it looks like a a, a mound of something has been cut, sanded, and it's they're perfect. They're like compressed 
strata of plastics, papers, books, aluminum, fabric, vinyl um, that have been trimmed, cut, compressed, and they're the they're just really I don't know they're supple they're kind of you just want to touch them um, but I, I I like to see people doing stuff that we're not that visually familiar with you know it's all it's i mean it's always cool to see artists do new and cool stuff in bronze or with oil paint but when people are finding a way to make sculpture i feel like especially that's just kind of completely new that you don't exactly know what it is and even if you know the what the materials are you're like i still don't quite know how they made it but then there's also you know it's not just the like ooh ah wonder there's like something deeper there too um i always like to see that in in a show um and when it's a texas artist doing it that's even better uh william you wrote about a couple shows in uh dallas recently do you want to talk about one of those or was there anything else that really stood out yeah i mean i the piece you're referring to i wrote about um masamitsu shigeta's reflections exhibition at 1226 and also Site 131's exhibition, To See is a Gift. Those are both, um, they're both along Irving Boulevard. They're very close to each other. Um, Shigeta's show at 1226 is stunningly a series of paintings of urban cityscapes in Dallas. I was really attracted to see the show because the painting that they used to promote the exhibition in their press release information uh, is a painting that includes one of the Dallas area rapid transit, and that's darts, uh, light rail vehicles, a train, a tram rather. Um, And I just, given that Shigeta is from Japan, lives in New York City, doesn't really have a longstanding tie to Texas or Dallas, um, aside from his work being acquired by the DMA earlier this year, I was just stunned to see that particular motif reproduced in a white wall gallery show. And I thought I have to go see what this painter is saying or depicting of Dallas. Um, And because I saw the Site 131 exhibition the same night, they both had receptions on Saturday evening. Um, I saw them immediately after each other. And the Site 131 exhibition is a memorial show of Seth Davidow's collection. Seth Davidow being the son and co-founder of that exhibition space alongside his mom, Joan Davidow. And she, of course, has worked at museums in Dallas uh, in the past. And so I thought Site 131 is kind of memorializing a person through their artifacts that they collected and then the 1226 exhibition was sort of memorializing a place through artifacts that depict the place and there was just such a compelling um, push and pull between those two things I, I felt I had to write about it given that it is an exhibition of a private collection the site 131 show uh, does compare somewhat to the warehouse There's a lot of contemporary conceptual work in relatively challenging mediums and formats. There's early work by Ben Terry and Arthur Pena, two painters that came up in Dallas 
And I was able to see Ben Terry at the reception and just talk to him a little bit about what it was like to have basically work from his grad school days collected and then hung on the walls. Um, and if I understand correctly, the painting shown by Arthur Pena at Site 3131 has approximately the same relationship to that artist's career as well. It was relatively early work. Um, so I don't know. I think it's always kind of heartening to see a collector that you can tell that they have a passion or at least a curiosity because they're not just collecting Danish figuration or something like that. They're they're really kind of taking chances on stuff that maybe is hard to store or, you know, kind of weird to hang. Um, there's a painting at Site 131 that is like a grid of wax, which is absolutely gorgeous. I would be terrified to have that in my home <laughs> because it would get dented so easily. Uh, so, I mean, that kind of got me excited when I visited the show. Jessica, what about you gallery or smaller institution-wise? What's kind of stuck out to you? Yeah, uh, one of the small um, gallery shows that I saw when I was in San Antonio was This Is How We Do It, Art and Family at Clamplight Studios and Gallery. Um, this is a small show at the front of the studio and gallery space um, organized by Raul Rene Gonzalez, rooted first in some portraits that he created of artists who are parents. Um, and I've seen his work before, and I, I love the topic that he's exploring. But what was really great about this show was that not only do you see his works and his portraits of these artists with their families, but he also displayed works that the artists created and works that their children created. Um, and so it was just a really sweet show to kind of see um, not just his depictions of people, but also their creations and their creativity come to life. I don't know if he's done this before, although in some ways, like in some ways, this seems like a very natural progression for him and his work. And in some ways, I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if he's already done this. And that's, you know, that that isn't any sort of insult or anything. I'm just, I guess, in some ways surprised if he hasn't because his artwork or he, he kind of has two different veins. But one of those veins, like you mentioned, is like about him creating art while being a father or about him creating art with his daughters or about his daughters being around as he is creating art. Like it's, it's almost kind of like meta portraiture. Some of the work that it's like him painting a scene of him making art and his daughters being there. Um, and you know, doing what kids do just like playing around or helping him. Um, so this is like th this show makes a lot of sense. And I feel like Clamplight is totally an appropriate place for it, partially because I feel like they're just kind of game for anything. And partially because it's like Clamplight is a community art space and a studio space. And it's like it's I don't know, it just kind of it that all that all sounds like it would jive really well. Yeah, it felt like a really natural um, thing for him to do and a natural place for it to be. Um, just like in this very welcoming, um, collaborative community kind of space. Yeah. 
one of the things that I saw that I, I feel like everyone's been asking me if I had seen yet when I was out and about was a show by David McGee at Inman Gallery. Um, this was kind of a big deal, uh, or it is kind of a big deal. It was number one, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, on our top five um, the week before uh, this week. Um, this is his uh, David McGee's first outing with Inman Gallery. He just joined the gallery very recently. Um, this show is super cool. Like David McGee is a good painter in every sense of the word. Like his watercolor game is on point. He has a little bit of like biting humor in the work, which I mean, you know me, you know, I like funny art, but I like art that bites back also. So a combination of the two of those things is really, it's really, I feel like this is oversimplifying it or maybe being cheesy, but it's like his, his work is timelessly poignant in a really nice way. Um, He has some really big or at least, you know, not, seven foot by five foot, but things considered big watercolors in the show. There are big like portraits um, of people that have like animals and different things around them. Um, those are gorgeous. Then he has in the back of the show, like a suite of abstract paintings um, or, you know, semi figurative abstract paintings. He just, again, good at painting in every sense of the word. Like when he goes abstract, he knows how to make abstraction interesting. Um, You get at least something out of it. You don't know if it's what he was putting into it, but they make you feel some type of way. Um, And I was, I was super excited for this show. This was one of uh, what I thought was going to be one of the big openings of the fall. It definitely didn't disappoint. Um, I also saw a nice suite of shows at the galleries at 4411. Um, that's definitely worth a visit and could take you, you know, three or four hours to get through everything and really pay it attention. Um, there's a really nice show at uh, Foltz Fine Art of their, like, fourth, I believe, Texas Emerging series, which it's nice to kind of get some new blood in galleries and give some artists a chance who you know, haven't had as much of a gallery presence, I would say, especially in Houston. So it's been fun to follow that series and see people like in this round, it's Rachel Caminos, who uh, is based in Harlingen and makes these amazing like tufted rug type pieces. And um, Patrick Renner, who had a little time in the spotlight earlier this year in Houston, but uh, people like Brendan Flores, who makes these really great paintings out of sawdust and they look like weird modernist things that I, you know, have, that they they feel like familiar, but also like completely new. Um, and it's, it's, it's just always nice to kind of see some new names pop up. Um, I know before we close out, I have one or two shout out things to be looking for. Maybe you'll see it, something about it in Glass Tire at some point in the future. Maybe not. But things that I'm kind of paying attention to, um, there's two books coming out. There's a republishing of Dave Hickey's Invisible Dragon, which is the 30th anniversary. There's a lot of anniversaries happening this year. There's the 30th anniversary of Dave Hickey's Invisible Dragon. There's Project Row House's 30th anniversary, which we didn't get to talk about this time around, but... Um, 
I'm sure you'll be saying something about that later. Um, there's the CAM, the Contemporary Arts Museum, Houston's 75th anniversary. So, you know, all of that. Um, sure, you'll see more about it on Glass Tire in the fall. But um, this republish of Dave Hickey's book is going to be super interesting. They're also releasing an LP featuring music that was written by Dave Hickey. Eight of the songs were written for uh, as a soundtrack for a Nick Nicosia photography show, um, which, you know, it's like collaborations are weird and hearing these many years after they were supposed to be heard and made is just going to be kind of its own thing. Um, Jessica, William, any last thoughts of what y'all are paying attention to in the la- in the next, oh, you know, I guess the next couple months for this fall? Uh, Book-wise for me, I'm really excited that we just got a copy of the Latin American artist from 1785 to now, um, Faden book. Um, I haven't cracked it open yet, but it is the next thing that I'm excited to look at and dig into. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, Houston artist and gallerist Elaine Schlumberger sent me a copy of Track Changes, a handbook for art criticism, edited by Myra Dayal and Josephine Heston. Um, I was incredibly flattered that she offered to send it to me. I think she just bought, I think they just sent her two copies on accident. <laughs> um, but it was very sweet that that she thought of me and it's incredibly uh, relevant to what we do. I'm enjoying getting into it. And um, if you're in Dallas or if you can make it to Dallas, I highly, highly recommend checking out Spacey, which is a micro cinema in Tyler Station in Oak Cliff. It's right off of the red line. You can take the train. Um, Tony Nguyen, who is a veteran in Dallas film, just has a passion for showing these obscure art films. And I can't think of another place where you can see just like some of the most insane movies uh at least outside of your home, you know, and he's doing screenings almost every day, more than once on the weekends at times. Um, I've been to a couple. It's absolutely marvelous. I highly, highly recommend it if you if you can make it. Good to know. And, uh, you know, as we say almost every time, there's a ton happening. Check out our event listings where you can find near everything that's happening across texas and uh check our site this fall as it progresses i'm sure you'll be seeing some reviews of shows some interviews with artists and curators and some other things coming down the pike about things that we did and did not mention so with that thank you for listening and go see some art go see some art go see some art This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.